This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Want to become the sort of developer top rail shops like ThoughtBot fight over? Join Upcase today to get the pro training, insider knowledge, access to ThoughtBot developers, and a community of like-minded learners you need. Hone core skills like Vim, Tmux, Git, and Rails by visiting upcase.com slash half off to get 50% off your first month of Upcase. Let's get that junior out of your title and start leveling up today with Upcase. My wife and I did our honeymoon in, in Hawaii a long time ago now. <laughs> and uh, I remember we met this couple, like the last couple of nights we were there, we met them in the hotel bar. And they were saying that they went on their honeymoon there two years prior and never left. Oh, my gosh. And we it's were like, kid. stop, don't tell us that. Because <laughs> like they went back to like get exactly what they needed and then just moved mm-hmm. back. For, wow. <laughs> they were like, we just didn't want to leave. And then because yeah. we were already like we didn't want to leave. We loved Hawaii. And then we decided that like we were we didn't decide, but we were like joking around about like what would it be like if we just lived here? Like we could do it for a little while. And then like in the hotel book, the hotel gift shop, there were books on moving to Hawaii. Yes. And like we were just joking around about it the whole time. And then we met these <laughs> <laughs> we met people these people who were like, well, we did it. And all of our stuff is in a storage unit in San Francisco. Oh, wow. Hi, Lila. Hi, Derek. How are you? What's new? Um, I am good. I just started a new project today. Um, hmm. I didn't ask them whether or not I could talk about them. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so in general terms, it is a decently large and growing website, well-funded that has some like growing pains kind of thing going on where like they're in a situation where a long time ago, I talked about a client where they had a, like a service oriented architecture. They, they have, they were experiencing pain. They went to a service oriented architecture and it was like the wrong decision for them. And they drew the lines in the wrong area, that type of thing. Mm. And like this client, this customer is like right before having made that decision. So it's actually like more of an ideal point to be like, wait, 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 (laughs) (laughs) we can, we can do this. We can, we can fix the problems you have now without creating new ones by inserting HTTP everywhere. Um, (laughs) So anyway, that's, this is day one on the client. So it's always weird day one because you're like, I'm not entirely sure what I should be doing. So I'm just going to find something that like looks like I can refactor or like just to like get my feet wet and like follow, figure out what their process is for PRs and for getting reviews and all that other stuff. So I'm in that mode of trying to figure that out, but it'll be one I'll be on for a long time. So I'm sure I'll be talking about it here in the future. That sounds really interesting. And it sounds like as you say, an interesting time to be starting to work with them kind of before all of the big architecture changes are underway, which is (laughs) good. Yeah. Yep. Because it was like the last, the last client we got there and it was like, um, all that stuff you did for the last year, uh, what what would you think if we undid it? (laughs) (laughs) What if we put it all back in the same application? And I was just talking to, uh, Josh, who's the development director in Boston and we still have, uh, Trevor, here works on that project still and the update from him was that they are about two to three weeks away from having it back down to the one application oh really yeah that's amazing so it's been about a year probably probably a little more than a year since i started i was the first one to kind of go onto that project and uh so in about the span of a year it's been all collapsed back down to one wow that's that's i'm sure there are a lot of really good stories there <laughs> right yeah. a lot of interesting learning experiences uh, how about you? What have you been working with? What are you excited to talk about this week? Good question. I'm not on client work this week. 
I'm in between projects and I've just been kind of focusing on writing a blog post and I don't know, random assorted other things. Um, but I'm excited to talk about something I ran into a few weeks ago on my most recent project uh, concerning the general problem of validating input and returning actionable feedback to the entity that provides invalid feedback, <laughs> whether that entity is a user or a client application or both, really. Um, right. Yeah. So I just kind of wanted to talk through the specifics of the problem I was working on with Gabe at the time. And before I share the implementation that we ended up going with, I, I like want to ask you what your approach would have been and like okay. what you think you would have done in that situation. All right. And then I can tell you what we ended up doing. Sounds good. Okay, cool. So what we were doing is actually pretty straightforward or rather it was something that if you're making a web app, you have probably done before, which is we had a big form of um, fields that the user needed to fill out. And the data in that submitted in that form needed to go to our server. And then it needed to get passed on to uh, a third-party service. To be more specific, this form was for adding bank account information. So this is for an application where certain kinds of users can receive payouts for services. And in order to receive a payout, they need to have a bank account associated with their user account. And obviously, uh, we didn't want to be you know, dealing with BCI compliance and stuff, so we were using Stripe as the payments service provider for this application. So what we needed to do was collect a bunch of information about the user's business or personal information if they didn't have like an employee identification number for their business. And we also needed to collect their bank account information, send that bank account information to Stripe from the client side, get a bank account token back, and then send the token plus all of the details to the server side, where we then had to make another request to a different Stripe API to create what's called in the Stripe Connect API an account with the information like the last four digits of the user's social security number or the employee identification number. And the most interesting part of all this was that the Stripe API for creating the account doesn't actually validate any of the input when you make the request. So you can create an account with like, you know, basically no information with maybe email address and maybe first name and last name. And if you don't provide uh, the last four digits of the social security or employee identification number, that account just won't have the same kinds of capabilities as an account with that for which that information had been provided. The most important of those capabilities is the ability to receive payouts greater than a certain amount, which we wanted that to be possible for, for all of our users. So Anyway, long story short, what we wanted to do was make sure that as much of that information was valid and provided to us as possible up front before sending it on to Stripe, rather than getting into a situation where 
we have part of the account information and an account created in Stripe system, but we still don't have informa- the information from the user that will allow the user to receive more than you know, X dollars in payouts per day or whatever. Okay. Does that all make sense? Yeah. So the two things that you needed to talk to Stripe for were to validate the bank account information, right? Was that the first yep. thing? And then the second thing was to create this account. Yes, exactly. And you could Stripe Stripe would not verify for you that like the account you're attempting to create will have the will have the proper rights to take out more than X dollars per day or whatever. Yes. Right? You had to add some validation on your application side to basically say we need to make sure when we send this off to Stripe that it has all of these fields. Yep. So that they'll be able to do that. Yep. Okay. And the bank account stuff has to happen client side because you don't want to take that information server side. Yep. Okay. Yeah, this is similar. I've I've had similar experiences, not for like setting up the payment thing. So that's a little different to me. But like we did on uh, this project called Reserve a Game, which was like for booking tennis courts. They collected a bunch of information when you did a, a reservation, not like a bunch, but, you know, information that was pertinent to Stripe for billing the credit card and then information mm-hmm. that was pertinent to the application for the reservation. And we wanted to do all of those things like in one form. So when our first go at it, when we wired up the form, we wired up the form, we wired up Stripe J, JS or like some sort of JavaScript. I don't know. Stripe JS might be a particular implementation of Stripe, but we interfaced with Stripe's, you know, uh, backend via JavaScript for the credit card charging thing. And very quickly, it was like, this is kind of a broken user experience because you can fill out the credit card stuff that all gets validated client side without going back and you can get all that right and then hit submit. So at that point, like from a technical perspective, you've cleared the Stripe hurdle, right? The Stripe Stripe verified the credit card and gave you a, and is returning you a token and sending that on to your backend. And then your backend gets it and is like, oh, you didn't give us a first name, right? Or whatever the case may be. You didn't give us your name. Um, so then we need to dis- redisplay the form. But now we've lost the credit card number. Right. <laughs> because we never had the credit card number because we never sent it to our server because we we're doing what we should be doing. Right. Um, <laughs> so, and it's this weird experience where like maybe you got a validation error on the credit card, then you click next or you click submit and then you got a validation error on some other field and your credit card's gone. And it's super <laughs> annoying. It's terrible. So the way that we tackled that, and I think like basically you would have the same problems here as yeah. well. So the way we tackled that on that project was to put everything off as much as possible onto HTML5 validations. Mm. Um, That's not ideal without a polyfill because HTML5 validations are not at all recognized on like mobile Safari or maybe even mobile Chrome. I'm not sure. But a couple couple decently used mobile browsers don't do anything with HTML5 validations. So those users still would have that problem. But we were on a short time span and like it seemed to be an okay trade-off for what we did. So like most of what we were doing was like a presence validation. You can do like limited format validations with HTML5 validations, I think. So we were doing those. So we did as much as we could just to like get and and like HTML5 validations look differently from browser to browser. So some that yeah. bo- that bothers some people. Um they've started to at least look decent in most browsers. They used to look terrible. But it, for for that circumstance, I think it worked out pretty decently. If I had like more time, there were other libraries that I think had been suggested for this. Like, oh, I forget what it's called. I want to say it's something like Parsley or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. I've used Parsley, and well, I've only used it once, but it was it was a good experience. I found it to pretty easy to use and just like 
kind of plug it in and it works for forum validations. Right. So, so like basically what I wanted to do was try and take as much of the validation and put it on the client as possible. Yep. Um, so that they didn't have to send and and the re the reason why you know it was it was successful I think in the most part for browsers but not I mean for desktop browsers but not so much for mobile because of the whole mobile Safari not supporting um, HTML5 validations. Yeah. What'd you do? <laughs> well, well, first I want to ask you. Okay. So let me just just so I understand. So just to talk through like the different steps in submitting this this form that you just described. So when the user clicks submit, I assume that a request is made to asynchronously to create a token for the card. Mm -hmm. And if that is successful, then the form is posted to the server. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then kind of similar to your situation on the back end, what we did was like create a use that token to create a credit card with Stripe, not necessarily a charge. Right. We'd create a stored credit card with Stripe, and then we would charge that card. Yeah, uh, that's what we do. So, in the case where you know somehow there's some invalid input that gets sent to the server, how did you approach the error case on right. the server if, side? If when that it fell back to that terrible experience we were talking about before, where your credit card would go away and you'd have to and you'd have to provide it again. If we had more time to kind of flush that out, I wonder if we could have done something where like. The very first thing we do is create the Stripe credit card record. And then if at that point something else happens and we have to re-render the form, we can just not show them the credit card stuff and be like, we were able to create your credit card. We're gonna use this, we're gonna use this stored credit card with these last four so these last four digits mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Which is something we did store. Um, right. and then say and then give you the rest of the form that you would have to edit. But we didn't we didn't do that. I'm just thinking about that now. Yeah, um, yeah. What we did was that it would just fall back to that terrible experience. So we did everything we could to make sure that only valid data would be posted. Mm -hmm. I mean, not everything we could, but everything we could within reason of the time that we had um, to make sure that only valid data would be posted. So does that mean that the server was responding with a redirect or what was it doing? Um. No, it would just do the tip. I think what it would, it would just render the template. Yeah, just render, oh, render okay. edit or render new or whatever it was. And then, but the params, like mm -hmm. it needs the params in order to refill those fields and it doesn't have the credit card number. So right. it can't do that. So it wasn't responding. It was responding with HTML. Yep. Not JSON. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So this was all on H. This was other than the Stripe interaction. Everything was yeah. just a regular Rails app all the way through. Okay, cool. I'm glad I clarified that because what we ended up doing was we had actually already kind of ended up building, a, uh, this sounds more elaborate than it was, but a custom form validation object uh, on the client side. We had other forms where we needed to validate input and it, need to be, it needed to be a snappy user experience. So we already had something that worked pretty well for um, client side validations for any given form. So because we already had that, we decided to submit the form uh, to, to make the request using JSON and not HTML. So what we did was that when someone submitted the form, what we would first do is validate all of the fields on the client side using this, this um, JavaScript object that validated form fields. And if all of the fields were valid, then we would create the Stripe token for the bank account. And if that succeeded, then we would 
serialize the form and send it to the server. Mm-hmm. So we were handling the case where the, the Stripe, the request to create the Stripe token failed in a very like nominal, like, oops, something went wrong with Stripe kind of way. Like, mm-hmm. you know, not, not, nothing very elaborate. But then, you know, once the form has been posted to the server, the question becomes, if it's a JSON request, how much do we care about providing um, a meaningful error response if some of the input is invalid? Because in theory, that should never happen because this endpoint is being used in one place in our application and there are already heavy client-side validations on the form that posts to that endpoint. So theoretically, invalid input should never come through. But if it does, we want to return a a correct error response. We want to return a 422, Mm -hmm. unprocessable entity. So this, I think, it sounds like wasn't something that on Reserva Game you had to think about because it was an HTML response in the case that the input was invalid. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So what would you do <laughs> in this situation where, like, how do you, how, basically, how do you think about the redundancy of right. validating input on the client side and the server side? I think it's necessary. I mean, it's, on, it's, it's necessary. So, like, you have to do the validation server side because you can't simply trust what comes in, right? Yeah. But then the question about how much care do you take in returning good error messaging yep. is, is, I think, what we're talking about here, which is, to me... Like from what you've described, like you have to try and think of who you're expecting to see these error messages. And to me, those error messages are for you, are for like you, the developer, not yes. not the end user of the application, right? The end user of the application is hopefully going to see the error messages that the validator is building if everything's working properly. Yep. Um, so I think what I would opt to do is to give myself some something that told me this is what the back end thinks of what you sent. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I'm going to be able to look at and be like, OK, well, that doesn't line up with what my form validator is doing. There's a bug somewhere. Yep. And then, you know, maybe have some sort of escape hatch where if whatever comes back, I, I don't know how you would without seeing the code to implement like what was done here without having like maybe there's some sort of escape hatch you can do where like if you get a response back from the back end that doesn't jive with what the front end validator thinks was wrong then you can mm-hmm. say like something what you can do that oops something went wrong please try again kind of thing but i don't think that's really necessary you can do that in any case really because you know that the validator returned true like validator allowed the form to be submitted so it thinks the thing is fine at that point if something goes wrong you expect that it is either a bug in your code in which case hopefully you have tests and that caught it and never went to production mm-hmm. or it's just something happened with the network or something like that. And the best you can do is, oops, try again. Right? right. In either case, even if it is a bug you introduce, like there's nothing you can tell the user that's going to make it better for them other yep. than other than we're really sorry. Try again. Yeah. And like what are, one of the things I think about when when you said that you did it with JSON, one of the things I think would be really interesting about really good about that is like keeping all that data client side means like you don't have to lose the bank account information. Right. Yep. That can stay there. Exactly. So that's a, that's the solution to that problem, I think, which I hadn't thought of. Um, is just submit the whole thing in JSON. You're fine. Like you haven't cleared the form yet, so it's okay, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's that's true. And the downside is that it's a little more work. <laughs> right. Because then, what yeah. do you do? 
what do you do when it comes back in success as a success case? Then you then you have JavaScript redirect, or you've yeah. Okay. Then you have JavaScript redirect. Okay, it's not um, too much more work. It's well, I mean it's an API, so it's a little more work, but yeah, I think in this case we just no, it wasn't a redirect. It was a redirect to the you know yay congrats you have a bank account right on file now. So yeah, we followed that convention with I think all of the forms in that application. It's funny because we started with pure Rails, HTML, very straightforward, kind of vanilla approach. But very quickly, we realized that the user experience needed to be nicer. And so we moved to an approach where we were submitting all of our forms asynchronously and redirecting and handling the response on the client side. And how did you like that? Um, I actually, that's a good question. I liked results for the user experience. I liked that we had a lot of control over what kind of feedback to show the user for different failure cases and that it was a pattern that we could follow for all of the forms. The hard part was structuring the JavaScript in the absence of a framework. Oh, so this is totally framework-free? Yep, framework-free, all cool. jQuery. <laughs> well, yeah, that's cool. What did you end up doing for the error messages? Because you asked me, and then you did, yes. I don't think you said. So to provide a little more context, what we needed to do was take a, this blob of params coming from the form, map them into a hash that adhered to the API that the Stripe client gem expected mm-hmm. for, for the request to create an account. And then if all of the required properties were present, then make the request to Stripe. So what we needed to do was look at the incoming parameters Oh, and they were pretty, they're pretty deeply nested, by the way. So we had to, we had to look at this deeply nested hash and validate the structure of the hash, basically, and validate, I think, the length uh, and the type of some of the properties. So what we decided to do was use the JSON schema gem to validate the incoming so what I can't remember is if we validated the incoming parameters or if we validated the parameters after munging them into the shape that Stripe expects for that request. Either way, we use JSON schema to define the JSON schema gem to define a schema in JSON schema and validate that hash against the schema. And um, the original idea was that taking that approach would allow us to add errors to an object, which we could then expose in the API response. That turned out to be a big headache and more, more, more work than it was worth to, to provide that kind of granular feedback on which property was invalid. So you were taking, I want to make sure I got this. So you were taking the, either the request directly from the client or after you had munged it, one of those two. Yes. And then at runtime, validating it against a JSON schema. Yep. And you would get back a pass-fail, basically. Yep. And then it, it proved to be hard to get more information than that? Yep, okay. exactly. 
hard to get not hard to get more information from the JSON schema gem regarding the failure, but hard to translate that into nicely formed error messages, basically. And at that point, we realized that it wasn't really worth the extra work of exposing specific error messages because, as you were saying, the error response in this case is really for the benefit of the developer, not for the user. Right. So we just said, okay, we're returning a 422 and a generic error message, and that's all we need for now. Right. That seems to make sense to me. Yeah. I like that approach. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. It was a little, it's like definitely not conventional, but using something like a, a standard active record validator would have not been very easy with the deeply nested hash structure. So, yeah, yeah. I, I would not have thought of that. So that's interesting. You are finding interesting uses for JSON schema all the time. <laughs> yep, that's my wheelhouse. Apparently. That's your wheelhouse. I do database <laughs> views all over the place. You can do JSON schemas. It's cool. <laughs> when all you have is a JSON schema, everything is a JSON API. Oh um, my gosh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, I, I think like the client side validation stuff. I don't know if you have more on the, the about the specific API, but the client side validation. Do you? Before I go nope. on? Okay. Nope, that was it. The client-side validation stuff is something I've been thinking about a lot because there was a time, there used to be this gem called client-side validations. Did you ever use that? No. And it would attempt, to, it, what it would do is attempt to look at your Rails validations and replicate them for you on the client side. Oh, interesting. Um, it looks like somebody's still kind of working on it, but I know that, um, I think it was originally from the folks at Dockyard. I might be wrong about this. Mm. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. I think some, they might have abandoned it and somebody else might have picked it up, but it worked decently well for things like presence validation, stuff like that. So I, I think that works pretty well. And then simple form at some point came along and added support for HTML validations for like presence and stuff like that. So you could configure simple form to like put required true on your on your HTML inputs for stuff like and uh, for various if you have a required field or whatever. Right. Um, I feel like that works decently well. But like I said earlier, I feel like what I would find is that the stuff you could validate client-side would look one way, and then when you had to go back to the server to validate additional information, it would look a, it would look different. Yes. And that yeah. was always always a sticking point with clients. Yeah. And I can see why, but at the same time, like it's so cheap to get that level of validation that it it seems silly to throw it away because it has browser Chrome rather than, you know, the site Chrome. Yeah. But I don't know. We have we have to do it sometimes, I guess. But I've been thinking, like, because I just don't want to. I didn't want to like pick up Parsley and have to do it. Have to do something like that, or yeah. Um, and we'll link to Parsley in the show notes as well, as well, which will be at bikeshed.fm/slash thirty-eight. But then recently, I read this article about accessibility, and it was taught. It's called uh, Seven Ways Form Accessibility Can Boost Conversions." That sounds really interesting. Yeah. So they talk about various uh, form accessibility things, and one of them, one of the things they talk about is error messaging, and they found that conversions go up when you can provide immediate feedback to the user. Mm -hmm. So like mm -hmm. not, not only like when I click create and give me client side validations rather than going to the server and round tripping, but like when I tab out of a field or when I move on to the next field, give me a validation immediately. And HTML5 validations can give you that. They're a little, they're limited in what they can do because they can only validate the text in a way that you tell them, right? There's no like check this against my database, make sure it's unique. Like you can't, right. you can't do that. Um, without getting into some JSON to like post back or whatever, but that's what 
one of the things they suggested was was doing that. And then another thing I thought was really cool and, and things that frustrate me about form validation is when you you get back like a reasonably large form with an error in it and all you have is like you you don't you have no indication of what has an error like you have to scan the form to see like yep. oh this is there's a little hint of red right here yeah or maybe all the errors are at the top of the form and you have yep. to like oh what's wrong okay this is wrong let me go to this next thing yep. and what they suggested in this article was to have a way to say like um if you had a field like in their example they have a form field called last name which was left blank and they have data and then a couple fields down they have date of birth which was also left blank and so in their example both of them are highlighted in red and it says this is required and then below the field there's a fix the next error button like a fix the next oh, error wow. link and oh. you click fix the next error and it takes you it focuses you immediately into that field and like oh, that's the, very cool their suggestion for and this is a this it's this comes from a website that's focused on conversions so like they are backing their suggestions with data and they're saying their suggestion is basically re like if you have to fill out a form what you want if you have to refill out the form what you want to do is like focus the user right on the error they have and then give them navigation to get to the next thing and so that's something i wanted to try like on the next project where i'm building some sort of like <laughs> conversion funnel yeah. right or any yeah. really any form i think it'd be interesting i think the fix the next error like a lot of the best practices they were talking about for like making sure you label the errors and making sure you put what the like what the error message with each field is and not just highlight it in red so you're like what what does this mean i don't like like because like where it's blank and it's required that's kind of like you can, you can guess that like oh they probably want me to fill this out but where you filled it out and it's just red and you're like i don't know is this too long what, what's the problem yeah. yeah but i feel like most of this stuff is handled pretty well by simple form if you're doing like typical rails form stuff um, but I think I want to try the the next error navigation type thing and see how that goes. But anyway, yeah, that's really cool. That's just been when when you mentioned form validation that popped in my mind because I had just read that article. So yeah, link that in the show notes. Have to um, talk to some of the Thoughtbot designers about that. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's cool. Um, what else about validation? Lots uh, of terrible I mean, experiences with validation. But yeah, <laughs> right. Like it's just something we could talk about forever. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah i don't know because like validation is something that it's something that has to occur at every level of your application right you know? like i i have been trying to just be like oh let's let rails like i try really hard to just stick to the rails request response cycle mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then you read things like this where they're like well but we have data that shows that you're going to do better if you validate these things on the client side and then that little part of me goes, oh, that's more work. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. I, I know what you mean. And if we hadn't gotten that feedback from the client team that, you know, these forms really needed to be a better user experience, then we would have just stuck with the the straightforward plain Rails approach. But I, yeah, I do think it was worth it because pain, forms are so painful. Like most forms in the world today are just so painful to fill out. Right. So... And that's, that's always my advice to clients too. Like even on this Reserva game thing, I was like, do we need to have these, do we need to have this data? Like, do we need to have their first name? Right. And yeah. it was like, well, when we email them, we want to say hi, so, hi, you know, so-and-so. Right. And I was like, well, how much does that add versus you have to, now they have to fit like how much, how good do you, do you feel about a form that has two fields versus a form that has three fields, right? You feel way better about a form that has two fields because you're like, yeah. oh, I'm going to be able to get through this quicker. Great. This has fewer requirements on me. Um, 
Oh, this is just uh, unrelated, but this has made me think of another thing that's happening in conversion funnels recently, which is like making them kind of multi-step and hiding how much you're going to have to do. Oh, yeah. So you get like halfway through and you're like, wait, now they want me to confirm my phone number? Yeah. Like, forget it. Like all these, like a lot of abandonment happens there. Anyway, that is not related to validation. I was just thinking about these conversion funnels. Um, personal experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I think what I want on the validation side is I want HTML5 validations to, I want something native to handle this for me and like maybe give me hooks to style it. But it's just not, HTML5 validations are just not it because they're not implemented by mobile browsers and they're not stylable in a way that would be consistent with a response that you would get from a server. And there's just yeah. no, there's, I can't think of a scenario where you would be building a typical request response client server, you know, uh, web application where you would be able to validate everything that you're going to validate on the server side, also on the client side, yep. um, without having to duplicate work of like, if you do a uniqueness validation on an email, having to like, every time they tab out of that email field, send it off and make sure it's unique, which I, you know, I've certainly done a lot of things like that for like when you're signing up and you want to pick a username, right? You do things like that, but you do that as a one-off, not where, not typically on every single field. Right. Yeah. That would be terrible. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I agree that HTML5 validations have a lot of potential. <laughs> they have a lot of potential, but they're not. I mean, they've been around long enough now that things aren't things aren't happening with them. I think yeah. every once in a while, I get like I've I've started to use them more and more until somebody like until somebody tells me there's a specific reason why we shouldn't use them, right? Because I feel like they do give you some sort of, particularly on an app where like a greenfield app where we're trying to get things done. Like maybe we have a, a like the reserve a game thing. We had like three or four weeks to do this thing. Oh yeah. And I was like, okay, we've got a lot of work to do here around like like it, booking available tennis courts and like uh yep. handling the geolocation stuff and i was like mm -hmm. okay we're gonna use html5 validations here right so like i think it's a good start for having yeah. saving yeah, users some stuff it's worth noting that the project that i've been talking about is actually it's much much bigger in scope it was a rewrite for mm -hmm. an existing application so there was already an existing standard that had to be met or surpassed in the user experience right which is you know, totally different priorities. So, yep. Yep. Uh, I see that. <laughs> the posting, the the posting everything is JSON thing like that. Once you had a pattern for that, was it like particularly difficult or? Um, no, actually, it was. It was really good. I think though, part of that was we didn't have that many forms. We had like sign up and sign in and. We had one multi-step form that was kind of complicated, but it kind of needed to be all asynchronous because it was kind of complicated and multi-step and like there had to be, it had to be a nice user experience. And then once we had built up all these patterns and infrastructure for dealing with these, these other forms, um, posting the big bank account form asynchronously just made sense. Right. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Once you had that, and, and like you said, like the I think the big benefit there was like not even having to think about that form re-rendering without the bank account information that is a pain in the butt to enter. Now you've got to yeah. enter it again, or like in the case of a credit card where you're like maybe maybe you know it, but it's still like really hard to enter every time. Or maybe you're going to use an autofiller, but you have to right click and have it autofill, or whatever the case may be. It's a pain in the butt to have that disappear on you. Yeah, I think we could have a whole separate conversation about 
tools for writing forms in Rails and, mm. and other frameworks, but not not now, not today. You mean it's like simple like, form and yeah, yeah, because we're kind of getting to like simple form. Right, and, <laughs> I have feelings on that as well too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'll my save feelings them. are like kind of negative. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, I don't like writing forms. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, but how do you like? We can whatever. Let's do it. How do you like? <laughs> how do you like? Um, like if you are writing forms in Rails, do you prefer writing like using just the Rails form builder or do you use simple form or something else? Or? Um, so I have really mixed feelings about this because I feel like I default to simple form. Mm-hmm. But sometimes with simple form um, on this previous project, we were running into sometimes we would have a hard time adding data attributes to the right elements that were generated by simple form and we needed to add data attributes to you know like parent divs of form fields for our validations and well actually just for our validations so i guess what i'm trying to say is that i found that when you use simple form and other form helpers not just a form field is generated but these divs around the field are generated Mm -hmm. like the field is nested within a div that has a class of input for example or you know whatever something like that and we've sometimes found it difficult to add data attributes to the right elements so yeah and like i think that boils down to that that's i have a similar experience with simple form is like it's frustrating that they call it simple form (laughs) because like it's not really all that simple and like i remember i was joking around with joe ferris about this we were on a project and he was like well you have to keep what you have to keep in mind is like the simple part of simple form is not like getting it configured the way you want it to be configured <laughs> and outputting the HTML you want. It's uh-huh. that once you have that, you have that everywhere, right? Yeah. So like you get it configured the way you want and maybe for like this where you want the data attributes or whatever, maybe you end up having to write a custom wrapper or a custom input or whatever the case may be. But if you go through that work and you have an app that has a lot of forms, you are now going to be able to use that everywhere by just saying f dot input and then the field name and then maybe you say like as my special text field or whatever. Right. So you know from that perspective, I like it, but it, it, every time I do have to customize it, it's one of those things that I can't keep in my head as far yeah. as like what do I have to do here again? Yeah. Like, or, or if I have to do a custom field, I'm like, how do I do one of these again? What do I mm-hmm. you know? I have to go hunting off into the simple form source to see how they implement text field and then be like okay well i want a text field that does just this other thing or the wrapper api i'm like oh in this one case i don't want this this wrapper div so what do i do Mm -hmm. um that type of thing i mean you can always drop back down to the rails form builders too because those are all underneath there but anyway then i also can i'm constantly confusing the dsls of the the form builders and form tags and simple form and (laughs) yeah i can see that i try to like if i haven't done because sometimes we do entire apps that have like one or two forms right Mm -hmm. and then and you haven't done so you might go onto an app and then be like i haven't written a form in a really long time this is great and then you're like okay so i do f dot text field no wait i'm using simple form do i just do f dot input that's it yeah that's all i have to do okay f dot input and then you know, and then it's like, well, what's the submit button? Is that F dot submit or is yeah. that F dot whatever? Like, yes, this is, this is exactly <laughs> my experience on my most recent project after not having written a form in a while. <laughs> and then every once in a while I get on a project that has Formtastic, which has a very similar DSL to yes. Simple Form because Simple Form, I think, was basically a response like Formtastic had very opinionated, like this is what your form should look like as well. 
And simple form was like, oh, how how do we just take that DSL that I like yep. and make it customizable? I um, changed it just enough, right? So that. <laughs> and they've just they've diverged a little bit, and yeah. like they're you'll I'll, I'll be like, this isn't working quite right, and then I'll look at the gem file, and I'll be like, oh, that's because this is, or I'll look at the form four <laughs> call, and I'll be like, oh, semantic form four, what? Oh, this is this is uh, you know, whatever that thing. I already forgot the name. Uh, formtastic. Formtastic. Yeah, this is formtastic. Anyway. Yeah. Forms. Right. Forms. <laughs> uh, forms. <laughs> <laughs> That's our episode title right there. Ugh, forms. <laughs> everyone. That will resonate with everyone <laughs> in the world. Uh, okay, let's wrap up. What do you think? Yeah. Sound good? Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 38. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are greatly appreciated. You can also send us feedback via email at hosts at bikeshed.fm, Twitter at underscore bikeshed, or leave a comment on the website. And then you say, thanks for listening to the Bike Shed. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed. We'll see you again next time.